the Peace River Trail. Alright, so this was actually an interlude in my episode, but I think I made it, I just prefaced it now because there are a couple of things that when I heard the entire series and I was like, oh, there are two questions that probably need to be answered first. <laughs> so the main source of inspiration is why I keep harping about <laughs> the Yukon are these two things. One is um, this mention of the Peace River Trail. I think the Peace River uh, Trail is uh, from Alberta, Edmonton to the Yukon. So, so that's how that name had come up, the Peace River was somewhere associated because of the Klondike gold rush. That's actually uh, where the name where the name struck a chord uh, with me. <laughs> uh, not in the sense that I haven't any interest in the gold rush, but it was um, it had to do with the mining story. I, you will hear in this episode somewhere where I talk about the mining built in Goa, and I think that is how I gravitated to um, the story of the Peace River Trail, and I think that the story of the Cree. I hope I'm getting all of this correct. Cree is how you pronounce it, I think, but I don't know. So that is um, how I linked, or rather that's how Peace River etched onto my <laughs> my memory. That was one thing. And the second thing I wanted to clarify is I kept thinking, right, there was something about the Yukon, there was something about the Yukon, and it kept popping up in many different ways. And I think I was just too emotional, so I couldn't, uh, and I had this mind block, but when I slept over it, like I was fresh and I immediately remembered, uh, what was it? <laughs> it was um, the call of the wild. The thing that I was looking for was in plain sight. Like I see my dogs all the time. <laughs> and um, so that was the real source from where it actually sprung, where all of this sprung up. It was uh, the call of the wild. It was, I, I mean, I think now I've seen the, the 2020 movie as well, but there was this black and white movie. I think it was in the 1930s. I mean, I didn't see it in the 90s. 1930s obviously or it was in the 1970s I can't remember but it was not uh, it was a grayscale movie it wasn't uh, grayscale or black and white oh god <laughs> it wasn't a colored uh, cinema uh, but the call of the wild is where I first heard about the Yukon and obviously the, it had a dog <laughs> so obviously that's there but I think I naturally um, gravitated to the call of the wild um, because when I was watching the movie the way the journey towards the north of Canada, the true north. <laughs> oh, Canada. <laughs> I will most likely, uh, in this episode, interject somewhere the Canadian anthem in French. I have a bilingual version as well. Sorry for the sore voice that I... I, I don't have a sore throat, but I'm just... It's early morning, so... <laughs> it's not so early as well, considering I wake up quite early at 4.45. <laughs> so, The Call of the Wild is the source from where all of this sprung up. It was an amazing uh, movement in history, a historical thing that happened, but like I told you, uh, the mining belt had an impact on me in the thing that, that mining does, right, to the soil. So it's hard to explain it to anybody unless you've been part of that. I'm, I am from Goa, so it's it's one of the mining areas in India. I have like a bittersweet relationship with it because uh, I love to drive as well, right? So cars and everything we use. I mean, there are things we use and you need to. Mining is required, but uh, to what extent and, and moderation and stuff of that nature, the population pressure and stuff of that nature kept 
playing on my mind and then when i saw this gold rush and i was like oh freak man they're going to destroy that place and i think that um, bond that i formed with it was instant because at the same time like i was impacted by it growing up right and that's why i keep saying it made quite the impression <laughs> um as if i was some mold to be impressed upon <laughs> but uh, it made quite an, quite the impression um growing up because i had to raise myself and i was and you will hear um the story in this episode i had to figure out my own moral compass and figure out what's right what's wrong and i learned that um there's no hard white right and wrong it's a all gray scale um nothing in life is uh, black or white uh, it's not right or wrong directly we we decide uh, based on an action and we always like like the like the mind freezes if you can't decide right so it's easier to say hey uh, this is right this is wrong so as a kid growing up since i have i had to create my own moral compass this had an impact like i realized that mining was required but to what extent and where and uh, how does it impact the lives of the people who are from that soil throughout history all of us are migrating so um we are all migratory animals but but it's also people who are of that soil so who migrated much much before us and this is where i actually have no knowledge right of history of when do people like when people say of that place like what does it mean were you already there or did you migrate from somewhere else even if you were the first person to migrate thousands thousands of years ago so so that's something i don't want to get into because i really don't know but for me indigenous cultures holds a very special place because that had an impression on me like when i was 10 12 15 in that growing up phase and that's why instantly i connected my story in goa with all this mining and the impact on the local community to the klondike gold rush and um, the peace river trail etched onto me from there and the call of the wild was actually the movie that made the most impact. Yeah, I think that that's what I wanted to say about the source and uh, why the Yukon will always be special. Here really, it's um connected to the mining story. And obviously my love for dogs also. I'm not even getting the right word now. <laughs> uh my love for wolves was there, but also um the story of like hey um dogs are nice <laughs> uh, and i always say i'm not a dog person and that's because i've not been like ardent dog fan but i just like dogs it's i'm not a dog person but i they just nice to have because i couldn't be live in the wild and when you're living in human settlements you got to have <laughs> creatures that are accepted by humans dogs um check that list <laughs> very easily so so that's why it was easy it was like okay fine come work with wolves let's have dogs <laughs> cats are just too small <laughs> so if you have a small small dog usually i'll be like you know i'll take the cat instead because it makes no difference to me otherwise <laughs> and yes i am like oh my god this is just so bad lady <laughs> you discriminated but um, that will actually help you understand why i say i'm not a dog person but it's just that i couldn't be in the wild with the wolves and larger animals <laughs> that's why i was like okay a, a medium sized dog is uh, pretty pretty okay and india was lucky to have i was lucky to have many dogs on the street uh not that that's such a great thing but not that it's such a bad thing either because this breed that grows up on the streets of india is i think one of the most resilient dogs because the dogs i got with me are from the streets of go india i picked them up as puppies so obviously they've not lived on the streets but they are the street breed uh, what people call the indian pariah indie dogs and both these dogs they are 14 plus and 13 plus and they came from 15 degrees north to 62.89 degrees north and that's what i mean by resiliency um they were able to adjust to the difference 
almost immediately. It was slightly difficult for Fraser because he had a heart condition to begin with when he entered. So there was always that physical drawback for him anyways. But for him to cope and improve and, and get better here, it does show some signs of uh, incredible resiliency. Before I digress again, I just want to end this and say, while I'm talking about resiliency of the native street dogs of India, I also wanted to point out another breed that had that impact on me. I think it was the Canadian Inuit. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. When I was growing up, I watched those dogs. It's fascinating to have such a native local breed. How what we've made out of the story of dog pedigree, mudigree, it's all crap. But the fact that they are off that land and they survive those temperatures, those conditions, and they sleep outside. They don't sleep in the house because they are working dogs, right? Has always been incredible to me. It's it's an inspiration of a different kind. That's why I always tell people, or at least I tell myself, <laughs> I don't uh, tell people because then it's like, oh, you are um, whatever, a preacher. But in my life, when I'm down, it's like inspiration is pretty much everywhere. And that's not a cliche because uh, if you only look at your surroundings and when you say nature, you don't have to go deep in the forest. But even if you look outside your window and watch a squirrel or a hare or a bird or anything, any tiny thing, even a spider on the wall, eeks, oh my God, <laughs> but even a spider on the wall, nature is just there in all its glory. And that's quite spectacular in its own right. So you don't need to go out for these amazing creative sources of inspiration. You just have to look around you and find uh, non-human species. I mean, humans obviously are inspiring too, <laughs> but we just talk a lot, like like I'm doing. <laughs> There's no difference. We just got an apparatus and we use it way too much. And I think I will lead into now the story because I kind of clarified the two things I wanted to say. It's the Peace River Trail, Canadian Inuits, and uh, the Call of the Wild. All right. So in the last episode, I think I've mentioned um, that I will delve into the theme of the trailer it's part of this podcast right but i don't want to like dive deep into that um the source is definitely the yukon and april 1997 is extremely crucial because two things happened in 1996 i believe i think it was a winter olympics uh, and canada had come up for some reason on national television uh, I, I don't remember it was I faintly remember that, but I know that that had an impact on me. And then that was the first time I think the name of that country stayed with me. It just sounded so nice. I'm like, Canada sounds nice. <laughs> and then I think in 1997, I watched this documentary about wolves being introduced from um, the Yukon to the Yellow Na- Yellowstone National Park. In reality, actually, when I later, much many years later, I reala- I read up about it and I realized that the wolves were actually introduced from Alberta, not from the Yukon. But I think there was something about that story and the exact specifics are, uh, are lost on me now. <laughs> it's it's I, I can't remember the specifics, but I do remember something about the Yukon was, um, was mentioned there. I do remember distinctly watching the wolves being introduced in uh, Yellowstone National Park and I do distinctly remember hearing about the Yukon and all these years I didn't even bother to see whether it was actually Alberta or the Yukon it turned out to be Alberta but that dream stayed with me because of the Dempster Highway. I think Dempster Highway, Winter Olympics and the Yukon and Wolves was the, the central theme of uh, that, that influence in my life as a kid. The Winter Olympics, obviously, because the first time I saw a figure skater, I absolutely fell in love. I said, wow, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to be a figure skater. But things transpired from there. Anyways, which I cannot disclose, but uh, things changed. And um, that dream did stay with me. Over the years, I watched a couple of movies and they always had Canada as a theme you know mushers and dog sleds stories of 
a Canadian post. <laughs> and I think every story, anything about the North, always somehow always had Canada and had wolves and snow. So that, that painted a picture, kind of had an indelible mark. It made quite an impression on me. And although I ne- was never at the forefront of all of that, like actually doing something and uh, going down that route because of a decision that I made at the same age. And so I kind of had, had two choices. One was to explore where my passion and dream would take me with the same theme, like wolves, snow and Canada. But also at the same point, there was a situation that I can't talk about at length, but I was I had a decision to make whether I would choose to follow my childhood dream, which was in my head, obviously, or I would follow or rather choose to be my mum's caregiver. 97, I was 12, so she should have been 36, I believe, 36 or 37. And that's when the first sign of mental imbalance was experienced, at least it was evident to me. I literally saw her hallucinating. She started hearing voices and she thought somebody was watching her and, you know, all of that mental degradation started. There was a history of violence obviously (laughs) there has to be something that triggers your mental condition the family anyways has a history so she was anyways prone to it but the trigger has to be something there has to be an external trigger for most of such events and it happened without me talking about it at length but so that was my decision decision point in april 1997 whether to choose my dream or to choose my mother i did what any 12 year old would do right (laughs) you choose your parents and your siblings and basically people uh, your family over anything else i made a choice a conscious choice or at least what a 12 year old thought was a conscious choice to be my mom's caregiver there onwards all my decisions my career choices my education choices my anything that i did uh, was always about will this help her will it keep me close to her so i didn't choose anything that would take me away from uh, my actual role the primary job the very first job that i did it was in april 1997 so all my decisions were circling around that decision that if i have to raise this person and i have to protect her and uh, make sure there's as little violence as possible there are certain things i will have to learn certain skills i will have to learn immediately i know i was 12 and um, it's too early to pick up things but i think it's interesting because this thing was a blessing in disguise and i see that quite a lot i started seeing that after 10 years like when i started turning 21 22 but i see it more so now because it gave me a sense of discipline and maturity at an age uh, when i wasn't supposed to have either of those two so i used to get up pretty early uh, on the pretext on the pretense of uh, wanting to study i hated studying i i, I love to read i love research but i hate structured education but i was like i had to find a way so my 12 year old brain uh, came up with stupid ideas and i just followed all stupid ideas one after another and I kind of uh, managed I think that that love for Canada just stayed because she showed up in many different ways every decision I I, I remember making um, as a kid 12 to 15 to 16 to 20 and then 21 onwards after I passed out of uh, college I got my mom out of that and in 2008 I moved with her to from Goa out from Goa to the city because there weren't many jobs in Goa and I was a mechanical engineering student way back in 2006 when girls were not hired girls were not studying mechanical engineering so in the middle of all of that there was no job (laughs) because I was a girl and they didn't want to hire women uh, because there were only night shifts and they didn't want to hire women back then it took the campus interview um, the job that I got through campus interview it was (laughs) 
weird. It was uh, to be a Java programmer and I needed to pay the tuition, uh, the loan basically that I'd taken, the education loan for my tuition. I said, okay, and I moved ahead. So what I'm getting at is since April 1997, two things happened. There was this immediate spark for, for Canada, for the Yukon, and Dempster Highway stayed with me. And then every time, every time life found a way for me or maybe I've made a way for me. I don't know, what was it? Um, there was always a Canadian connection. The Canadian Rockies also showed up. Uh, my brother started enjoying his geology classes and he started talking about, what was that? Paleozoology of the Canadian... Uh, God knows, I don't even know all those technical terms. Something to do with stratigraphy and something to do with the Canadian Rockies and the Paleozoology uh, way back. This is like in 2005 or something. So whatever. So, so somehow in my life along the way um, Canada kept this stayed with me basically and in this episode I want to I've edited some pieces because initially it was very difficult for me to talk about it so I had a very unabridged uh, version and then I cut it so you might notice um, gaps in between but I hope this 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 episode is a little iffy <laughs> but like I said in the last episode that I wanted to take some time to get all of this out of me but in a way that is appreciative of the fact that the spark never Never died as a 12 year old. So although I've been working, I always say that I've, I've, I've got a total work experience of 24 years because I've been working since I was 12. And that was a very, very difficult job, much more difficult than all the jobs that I did. And I got paid for. Um, that was an unpaid job at a very young age, a very, very tough role to play. You can ask parents how difficult it is to raise children. I've been told that parents who raise children, obviously, understand what I must have gone through. But parents who raise children with special needs will probably understand exactly what I went through because uh, raising as a child raising an adult is extremely excruciating because you don't get to call the shots you you really don't so you have to learn to make your way and make every decision seem like it's a decision that the adult has made you gotta learn how to communicate as a as a child but the second thing that compounds this whole thing was not just raising an adult but raising a mentally challenged adult who has been a victim of, of massive abuse. You have to, as a child, learn to raise yourself alone, figure out wrong and right, have your own moral compass, and then also make sure that the person, the adult you're raising, is safe and can stay alive. And this is very important because I think the, big, the greatest fear that I had, can I grow up fast enough to make sure that she would be safe? It's scary, but I think as you will listen to the rest of the episode, you will you'll realize why it wasn't that difficult and why um, Goa plays Goa and Canada, these, the country Canada, the whole of Canada, yes, but the, the Yukon specifically, and um, a place called Canmore, I think it's in Alberta, I can't remember, Canmore also has some some history attached to it. Uh, I, I will have to look up all my childhood notes, but there is uh, a mention of Canmore in my notes. So I know the Yukon is definitely, it's it's had an indelible mark on me, but Canmore also had an impre- made an impression for some reason. I have, to, I have to check what was that. But besides that, just the blessing of being in Goa, you know, coming from a very poor family, lower middle class in India, where you don't even make 2,000 Indian rupees per month. Your parents don't make even that much. Being that would have been being where I am today would have been impossible if I didn't grow up in Goa. 
So Goa plays a very, very critical role in why I keep saying that my journey wasn't as excruciating as it it usually should have been for somebody. Because you have to imagine the story, put yourself in the shoes of a 12-year-old kid, a girl child in a country like India in the 1980s where the girl child didn't have much value, coming from an extremely low middle class family. And this child has to raise an adult, more so a mentally challenged adult, in in a highly dysfunctional and abusive environment. It was a very violent environment. So there's poverty, there's violence, and there's a girl. There are a lot of things that could go wrong. The blessing called Goa is something I believe is the miracle of my life because had I grown up in a in a place like Delhi or Bangalore or any place outside of Goa, I don't think the story would turn out this way because it's very easy to go the other way. You will also understand why, probably you'll understand why I love the forest so much and what is my connection with nature. And I think that's played a very, very critical role because that's been the, um, the balancer in my growing up years. And that's never lost in me. And that's why I think even on a serious note in this episode, I wanted to bring that up. Despite the poverty and the violence, there were there was a blessing called Goa. There was also, strangely, the blessing called television because had I not seen the documentary and the Winter Olympics, Canada would not have been known to me. Two things that I, I don't watch TV. I don't even have a television. So I'm not a TV person at all now. But I think growing up that having a television was important at that point in time. Because I think these two factors, right? Just listening to Canada, watching to, <laughs> listening to the influence of Canada in some form or the other. She always kept coming in some shape or form. And uh, being in Goa, where I think if there is something called as a miracle, for me, I will attribute it to these two things. And I think that's the reason my life has been spectacular. But I look back and think of that 12-year-old girl raising a mentally challenged woman in an extremely violent environment and making sure she tops the class so that she can make, you know, get that money you get in your village when you top the class. They give you money to study. (laughs) You had to ensure that these these three things were important. Topping the class, making sure the family is, um, the environment is, you can't make it very conducive, but in the best possible manner that you could have to safeguard the woman for as long as, for at least some time enough for you to grow up because you're at 12, right? So you still have a decade to grow up. (laughs) And every time people always ask me, like, why are you wanting to grow up so soon? People want to go back to their childhood. I'm like, no, I need to grow up. I need to grow up soon. I think um, that's why I say it's been 25 four years and to be honest today although I'm 36 if I'm really honest with myself physically I feel like a 36 year old true but mentally I always feel like I am 50 plus and that's why when I meet people who are in their 30s I I cannot relate to them directly but I can easily relate to someone who's uh, maybe 45 plus because I've seen life through that that lens I've not had a childhood I've not had my teen teens I have not had my early adulthood as well everything has been about raising my mom that's why I cannot relate to youngsters and children Um, I, I just can't I don't have a frame of reference and it's easy for me to relate to somebody who's above 45 because they are at a stage where they're raising children, right? So I understand their struggle. But when I meet youngsters in their 20s and, you know, youngsters in their teens as well, I, I can't relate to them because I don't know what that life has been like. And I think that's the, the preface with which I wanted to, you know, set the context and maybe give you an idea of why is Arctic Howls so important, even though I have no academic credential as evidence 
experience to prove my love for the Arctic. I don't have any work experience. Nothing behind me that's, you know, visually, there's no visual evidence to prove that the Arctic matters to me, except that image of 1997 and the weird thing that Canada kept popping up. The Yukon specifically kept popping up in many different ways. And I think maybe I kept the flame alive. I don't know what was it. She kept coming up in, in several different ways. So in in future episodes, I think the next episode, I might talk about Dempster Highway, Dawson City. There's also another place I can't remember. Something to do with Peace Peace River, or I can't remember what it is. I will have to look that up uh, because I think that had had a had an influence on me as well, but not as as strong as the influence the Yukon as a whole had. Uh, Kluane, I believe it's pronounced as Kluane, but I, I don't know. Kluane National Park also had quite an impact. <laughs> I, I think those influences have been great. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a bit serious, uh, at least the first twenty five minutes have been, and I think uh, it is overall a serious episode. But I think. I need to get this out there first to set the context for uh, this entire podcast. I will go back to editing (laughs) and uh, then stitching all the, the edits. Anyway, see you soon. Discipline with money is one of the biggest things I'm seeing uh, youngsters struggling with. Not having money in a country like India, which is like so populated, <laughs> um, it's, it's a different feeling. If you don't have money, then food and uh, shelter is also at risk. So I think there were two things I did learn there, which make it very easy for me over the years when I look back, which is why it was important that I, I have to say this, that being poor can be a blessing in a way you will not realize. Yes, but you need to have some space some silence to actually observe that poverty without uh, mindless talking in your head. Uh, I was lucky that there was a lot of forest in Goa when I was growing up. Um, So it gave me that silence that I needed to observe my own thoughts and retrospect, introspect both on my actions, retrospect on my actions, as well as uh, understand my relationship with money and food. And um, it helped me actually do two things, become completely free um, from the dependency on money and food. I enjoy eating, but I don't, I like to joke about it, but actually I'm not that much of a foodie. I love food and I love cooking. I enjoy cooking. I I literally love to bake, but I'm not uh, a foodie. I actually, um, my intermittent fasting, the longest I've done uh, was 27 hours um, a couple of times. And uh, then I realized as a woman, it's a little tricky because it affects your body. So I moved it to 19 hours. And then I was like, okay, still it affects you in, in a lot of hormonal ways. So I was like, okay, I kind of said, fine, I will... Um, come midway. So I chose the middle way and I uh, started fasting only for for 12 hours. So now I fast, uh, like my intermittent fasting is about 10 to 12, maybe 14 hours. I I naturally gravitate to 14, 15, but I try my best to um, eat something after 10 hours at least so that I don't go down that route again of uh, fasting for longer hours because I've done 27 hours and it's not that difficult actually when you think about it. I'm not a foodie, but I love water. It's also the main reason. I haven't told anybody, but it's also the main reason why I wanted to be bald. Um, we started having water crisis in Goa. The north of Goa, the water was getting polluted by all the mining by mining activities. And I started reading stories of um, the local people there, the struggle that they had with water. This is something I've never told anybody. I always tell them, oh, I love um, certain wrestlers, <laughs> The Rock, <laughs> um, and um, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who are all bald, kind of bald, buzz cut and stuff. And I always told people, people that I was a big fan um, of WWF and that's why I wanted to be bald or I loved MMA which I do I love MMA and uh, 
BJJ mainly and uh, judo actually more than MMA. I don't like boxing, <laughs> but I like uh, MMA and that's why, you know, I didn't want any girl to pull my hair. So I just chopped my hair, but that's not true. Um, the real reason why I wanted to lose my hair and I had very long hair. This is like Indian, South Indian style long hair. <laughs> You'll be surprised by how long my hair was. <laughs> Um, nice curly hair, wavy hair to be precise, not curly. I wanted to chop it off because um, every time I washed my hair, there was a lot of water that was wasted. Um, you got to wash it, you got to shampoo it, you got to condition it. I just like, screw it, man. This is just too much of wastage. And um, it took me a while because I had to convince my mom who was... I was mentally challenged so she was attached to my hair and uh, it took me many years actually to tolerate and reduce my hair washing <laughs> smelly hair <laughs> in india i imagine so i reduced um, i wanted to reduce my uh, impact in terms of usage of water so i started um, doing something trying to try different styles so that my mom could kind of uh, you know she doesn't have a mental break of thoughts because i lose my hair and then finally i was lucky enough in 2018 uh, jan january 18, 2018, I think, to be um, precise. I think I'll have to look back that date. But uh, that's when I went for the bus cut and I actually became bald, kind of bald for the first time. And then I just started, I was just so happy that I felt like I, the promise that I made to Mother Earth that um, I'll try my best to reduce my footprint um, was kind of, in a way, I was able to fulfill some of that promise um, by by going through this intermittent fasting. Also, poverty automatically made it so easy for me that um, people don't realize that today, but actually poverty made it so easy for me to fulfill all my promises <laughs> to the planet <laughs> and tell her that um, it's actually less about guilt, but it's more about gratitude. I know people say, save, lower your footprint out of guilt and you're killing the planet. But for me, it's more about gratitude. I just am so much in awe of them that I want to give back. Um, actually, not even give back, just say thank you. And that's why I just like, screw it, man. I need to chop my hair. <laughs> I will save up, but I don't know how much water. I did save a lot of water because I had very long hair. And I'm never growing my hair again. Thank God. <laughs> so so those two. Anyway, so that's what I wanted to say that um, two messages, if you want to take away something, um, being like really poor um, is not such a bad thing, actually. If you're blessed, obviously, with uh, my mom was mentally challenged, but um, she was quite a blessing to have. It's very rare to have that blessing. Um, full of joy, a great fan of ABBA. Um, I'm not personally a fan of ABBA, but um, I know the songs in so much detail because I've been, uh, I was the joker in the house and my job was to keep uh, her happy, keep my brother um, focused on his life, um, considering we were coming from a dysfunctional family. So, and ensuring there was as little violence as possible in the house. But I also realized when I moved to Finland that I, I, I loved the snow when I was a kid watching since 1996 the winter olympics i think in canada um i wanted to be a figure skater so yes i am more than a figure skater i wanted to be a wildlife conservationist uh, actually to be specific i wanted to be a veterinarian um, and specialize in wolf conservation in the yukon timber wolves <laughs> so that's the story <laughs> i'm digressing again and that's fine now i feel whoever wants to whoever's been listening to me so far is probably another whack job like me <laughs> and maybe the queen of um, tangents <laughs> um mike if you're listening uh, this is definitely um not your idea of having an interesting <laughs> podcast episode. I will get to Arctic House, but I think I do want to get all of this out of my system and talk about it. Um, things I have bottled up for 24 years. 
um, it's important to me in that sense. And again, I'm not using the apparatus um, all the gear, the cheap gear that I told you that I bought for podcasting. This is live recording on my um, phone, the company-given phone, actually, not even my Android, which is quite old. It's um, what never settle. I forgot the name. Uh, OnePlus, OnePlus 5. I got it in 2017. 2017 was quite an interesting year for me. You will hear about it when I talk about my bio, which I will get to now. Uh, what do you want to know about Letitia Letty? Um, the main purpose is to facilitate conversations about what's contextually valuable, what's viable, what's feasible and usable. And this is to make earth stewardship second nature. I am a full stack communicator with over 12 years of documented experience, <laughs> paid experience 12 and total 15 and unpaid, undocumented in academic, technical and marketing communication, what I call my ATM skills, because that's the primary um, rainmaker. <laughs> Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Goa University. Um, I passed out in uh, 2006 and I was the only girl in a class of 72 rambunctious boys from India. Uh, but these are Goan boys. Uh, they are really lovely, the sweethearts. Um, thanks to all of you guys. If, if ever somebody from my 12, 2006 batch um, is listening to my episode. I just wanted to say thank you. I love you all. There weren't any girls. And uh, even now, I don't think there are many girls. You get just maybe four or five girls, but at least, yeah, a small number. But I was the only girl in a class of 72 boys in um, 2006. And then I got a graduate certificate in service quality assurance from California State University from the Dominguez Hills um, unit. And this was an online program because um, I'm my mom's caregiver. So I could not um, take an in-person in class. I had to take a distance learning format. I, I couldn't do regular, um, I couldn't complete my master's of the regular education. I didn't complete my thesis, but my master's thesis was focused on blending Scrum and Lean for developer-centered products. And the overarching aim or the real purpose was to make software supply chain transparent. Um, I loved software development. I'm from the product, software product world, and I love supply chain um, supply chains. So making software supply chain transparent was extremely important to me. It's not what you really think of. Um, it's more from the developer supply chain. It's one of the things that Kelsey Hightower recently spoke about. If you look up my Twitter feed, I don't post that much, so you might just find it. Kelsey does post a lot, so you won't find the video that he did about the recent effort right? they're working on, where he spoke about software supply chain transparency. And that's the definition of software supply chain transparency, as I was actually wanting to get into. And that's the reason I was fo focusing on developer-centered products, because I believe that um, developers can bring that sort of software supply chain transparency. I had to drop my master's thesis because my mom, um, which is my primary role, right? I, um, I've been a caregiver since April 1997 and um, the caregiver emergency struck yet again. So I dropped my master's thesis and um, so that changed the course of my career because I was completing my master's thesis, right? On this blending of Scrum and Lean for developer-centered products to make supply soft, so software supply chain transparent. Um, and all I was leading up to was to become a a developer advocate. Um, that was a career I was in trying to pivot into. So that's why I keep saying 2017 changed a lot of things for me. And I became a different person after that because I dropped my master's. I never like to quit anything. 
I always like to follow through. So dropping my master's thesis and being a university dropout was a big deal for me. It wasn't such a big deal from a social sense because I'm not a social person. I'm much of a loner. But dropping, I love researching. So dropping my master's was a big deal because I wanted to do my PhD as well. I think that was a tough decision, but I'm very happy that I made that decision because life was always by my side. Um, no regrets, no remorse, just absolutely grateful for this opportunity. And um, I enjoy a blend of product strategy and development, product development, product strategy. I love tech marketing. It's a very niche marketing. It's not, um, it's not mainstream marketing for a tech company. It's technical marketing for these developer-focused companies. So that's the distinction I want to draw. It's a very niche market. I don't want, like at iSci, I wouldn't be a tech marketeer. I do not want to be a marketeer at iSci because um, I don't want to do mainstream marketing for a tech company. I want to do niche marketing for these developer-centered platforms and products that are being built out there, very developer-centered. So that's sort of niche tech marketing. And developer relations, obviously, it's something I love. I wanted to become a developer advocate, right? So I enjoy a blend of product strategy and product development, a blend of technical marketing in that sense, and developer relations, project and program manager management, I absolutely love online learning programs, so I enjoy curriculum and course design. Um, shout out to Melissa Montalvo. She is an amazing person. Look her up at the Academy of Human Potential um, because um, she's just amazing. She's from Florida, my best friend, my soul sister, and she. it was because of her that I got deep into curriculum and course design and online learning programs and webinar funnels, sales strategies, sales funnels, uh, Facebook ad, long form copywriting, social media strategy, content strategy, everything I learned about it was um, because of Melissa. So thank you so much. Uh, but apart from all the blend of all of this, there's a very key ingredient in my life. I have been a ghost blogger since 2006. And what I love the, more than anything in the world in terms of work, though, is anonymity. So anonymity is extremely important to me. And, and you must have heard in the first episode of this podcast why uh, it was so difficult for me to take uh, to make this podcast. It took me four years to break, <laughs> break in, breaking and entering, sorry, break into <laughs> breaking and entering. <clears throat> so digital hacking is almost like breaking and entering, right? Like it's a B&E crime. Um, I'm digressing again. But like, yeah, breaking, in, uh, breaking into podcasting was difficult for me because of this whole thing that I love anonymity. Like I want only two things in life. One is to be anonymous and second is to have financial security in the sense that I can go live and be with the forest. And just an Arctic house is, is just that attempt to serve her, to say thank you to her. It's just me saying thank you every single day. And who knows, Arctic Howls would actually probably become either my solo premier journey or a non-profit. I don't know what it would turn out to be, but uh, for now it's a podcast. <laughs> but for any near future updates, please follow this podcast. And I didn't want to write Arctic Howls as the handle because um, like I told you, at the core, this is about the Arctic but it's also about that little Goan girl. Anyways, I wanted to end um, this episode by saying that thank you for letting me have this walk down the memory lane. There are things I've left out, definitely. There are things I've included that I didn't intend to include, but I think this was nice and cathartic. So um, if anybody's listening, um, thanks. <laughs> but I think this is just for me to probably listen to myself and also to relive the whole experience and how Yukon has played such a um, foundational 
role in my being in my existence if i never make it to canada <laughs> if i never make it to the yukon i i would at least be glad that when i'm old i would be listening to the story and uh, looking back again at how grateful i was that um i read about the peace river trail as well as um watched the call of the wild and that winter olympics in 1996 the critical juncture in my life the, the decision that i made in april 1997 all ties together i'm grateful in that sense um I'm actually even more grateful because uh all of that led to me having um fraser and denver my two dogs with me in finland so i am very happy how that turned out no regrets no remorse just grateful All right, I will see you in the next episode which will be about the Yukon, a uh, Dempster Highway, Dawson City, Peace River Trail. We'll talk about uh, some of that and a book by Bob Hayes um that you might see on my Twitter. It's pinned there and people are like, "Are you the author?" I'm like, "No, I'm not the author, but that is the most remarkable book I read." I mean, I've re- I I read a lot and I love a lot of books, but like the book that uh, it's emotional because it's the connection right the wolves of the yukon it's exactly what i wanted to do <laughs> so i will be talking about that um he is um i think he lives in whitehorse right now bob hayes i will talk a bit about that so see you in the next episode thank you for listening to this episode of arctic hulls the intro and outro music is by cooper moore courtesy of free music archive